Welcome to the Give Back Economy, a podcast about social innovation and social enterprise. Now with your host, Peter Miller. Welcome, and today we're going to talk with Samia Hassan, who's the Executive Director of the Council of Agencies Serving South Asians. So welcome, Samia. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for having me. Okay. So my first question is South Asians. What, uh, what countries does that cover? So um, we serve the South Asian diaspora that um, comes from different countries. So the ones that we serve uh, include countries such as Pakistan, India, Sri Lanka, Afghanistan, um, Nepal, um, Bhutan. Um, and then we also have uh, Bangladesh. And we have people that... Um, resonate as being South Asian. So the Indo-Caribbean community uh, might identify as South Asian as well. So <clears throat> the, the identity is quite flexible and fluid um, and we're not very restrictive. And if people are identifying themselves as South Asians, we also have uh, people that are from the Chinese Hakka background that live in India um, and, and also identify as South Asian, right? So it's, it's, a, it's an identity that is not restricted by countries or geography, although Although, you know, uh, in terms of the work that we do and the structure and strategy that we formulate, um, we do um, kind of center those countries uh, that are in the South Asian diaspora. But um, again, the, the identity and the communities that we serve is, is more flexible than that. Thank you. Samia, tell us about your education. Where did you go to school? Sure. So um, I am a graduate of the University of Toronto. Um, I uh, did my bachelor's of arts there um, in sociology and political science um, at the Scarborough campus. Um, and then I went on to do a master's in public policy from uh, University of Toronto's at that time, it was called the School of Public Policy and Governance. I believe they've, monk, uh, they've merged it now with the Monk School of uh, Global Affairs. So um, it's, it's a merged school now. So um, I, I did my master's there. Um, currently, I'm doing a second master's um, online um, on my own pace. Uh, it's a master's in Islamic studies. Um, it's through an online university. So um, just I feel that I'm a continuous learner. And if I am not in some kind of academic um, role uh, and if I'm not studying something, I feel like I'm not fulfilling my full potential. So, um, so maybe there it'll be something after this as well, maybe law school or a PhD. But uh, this is uh, what I have so far under my belt. Well, that's terrific. I'm a big advocate of learning. So, okay, so let's get into your work experience before you came to the council. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I was a bureaucrat before I came um, to CASA. I, and I, I mean, I came to CASA when I was fairly young. So I had um, finished my master's and I think a couple of years after um, I, I joined CASA as a project coordinator. But before that, um, I worked at the city of Toronto. Um, so during my master's program, we had an internship component 
um, that we were required to complete in a public policy setting. And so I was fortunate enough to um, secure um, a position at the City of Toronto's um, Affordable Housing Office. And my interest has always been in social policy and social justice. So that's where I worked. Um, and uh, after my internship, I stayed on at the Affordable Housing Office um, as a um, as a consultant. And uh, after that, I was again fortunate enough to secure a program at the City of Toronto called the Toronto Urban Fellows. Um, so I had a fellowship uh, of one year. Um, and uh, that was after that, I, uh, I took some time off. Um, I, uh, I had a daughter. And so after that, uh, the first job that I had applied for <clears throat> post my maternity leave was um, for CASA and um, I was able to secure the position and I just have not left since 2015. Okay, so the Council of Agencies Serving South Asians, otherwise known as CASA, what is the purpose of the organization? So, Peter, we are a uh, social justice umbrella organization, and what that means is uh, we're an organization that serves uh, member organizations that serve South Asian communities. So we are an organization that doesn't um, do frontline service work for the community, but uh, we have members, uh, currently we have over 120 member agencies across the province of Ontario that are serving South Asians in some capacity. So, um, you know, they can be organizations that are doing health promotion work or education related work or um, <clears throat> arts related work or ethnic programming, cultural programming. And um, we also have some post-secondary institutions that have a high um, density of South Asian students that become our members. Um, so, so we serve them through policy. We do a lot of research. Uh, we do a lot of capacity building work for our members, um, training, and we develop resources and tools and strategies and training that can help them to better serve the South Asian community. So we're kind of that middle person where um, we gather the data, we talk to the community, we do the research, we talk to um, the decision makers such as government, um, and then uh, we communicate that information um, back to the community, to our members, um, and try to improve the overall um, outcomes for our community, whether it's in um, in health and education and employment um, in, in cultural programming and social services, whatever it is uh, that we uh, that our community needs us to do. So we, we respond to those needs uh, by figuring out where the gaps are, where the barriers are, and then communicating those gaps and barriers to the appropriate stakeholders. So whether it's funders or government or service providers, um, we play that role. Um, and we also uh, oftentimes are advocates on behalf of the community. So we do a lot of advocacy work um, if there are areas that um, you know we feel like our community is falling through the cracks, we will, um, you know, talk to the community, gather that input and that data, and then and then convey that to uh, whoever is in the decision-making chair at that time. Um, so those are the the roles that we play. It's it's a different um, organization than most social service organization, as we don't provide direct social services. So is it Ontario only or? Sound so like really, 
you you have a, a lot of organizations that you're supporting. And I'm surprised you're not national. Yeah, so that's a really good question and really timely as well. Uh, so so far, we've been around for about three over three decades, and we've um, we've been serving organizations in Ontario. However, since about 2017, uh, we have received. Um, some projects to do some national work and I've had the privilege of traveling to other provinces myself back in 2018 uh, 2019 where uh, we met with organizations um, that serve South Asians in Alberta in BC in Quebec and um, we felt that there is a need for a, a similar organization to CASA in, in those areas as well so what we've been doing is a little bit of soul searching and strategy over the last year or so. And uh, one of the things that we are undertaking right now is we've actually um, uh, received some funds from United Way to see how our expansion can be implemented. So if we are going to expand on a national level, what does that look like? What kind of models should we follow? But so definitely that is something that we've, especially in, in light of COVID, and um, you know the disproportionate impact of COVID on on our communities. We felt um, that our role needs to expand uh, beyond the provincial scope, and so that that's definitely something that we are working on. And um, and yes, uh, we were already doing quite a few projects with our partners in different provinces. So it's just a matter of kind of. Um, putting that strategy together and um, and moving beyond that in a provincial scope to a national scope. So, Samia, talk about your team. When I looked at your website, you seem to be women-dominated. So I think... Um, that is that that you'll see that in the social service sector, uh, throughout the social service sector. Anyway, it's a it's a woman dominated uh, sector um, for various reasons, um, but I think in terms of our organization and who we have on staff right now, I think we attract people that uh, value social justice and um, and are younger. In uh, so a, a lot of my staff are. Uh, part-time students and doing this work or have just graduated and, and, and want to do this work and support organizations that are very uh, much dedicated to um, anti-racism, anti-oppression, um, anti-hate. So I think it's just because of the work that we do that there are certain populations that are, are more attracted to that. But I think generally um, in the social service sector, uh, it is a woman-dominated field, um, and for various, you know, systemic reasons, um, and I would say systemic racism is also part of it, where we have uh, our, our salaries aren't great in the social service sector, and, um, you know, there aren't great benefits, and so oftentimes these roles, uh, women are kind of forced to take on these roles, um, you know, in, in light of... Um, in the absence of not uh, having secured better paying jobs. So uh, I think there's a definitely an issue there where uh, we see more women in the social service field because of, um, you know, they have uh, certain restrictions and they have, they need to put food on the table for their families. So 
Um, but I, but we're very fortunate um, on the other hand where we do have very, very skilled women on our staff. Um, I, you know, at one point it was an all-female staff, but it's a very female-dominated staff um, uh, team that we have right now. And I think we, we do really uh, work well together. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, if we had male staff, we wouldn't well, work well together. But I think it's the... Um, the the commitment that they have to the organization and to to move forward. So, it's um, I'm really proud of of that uh, dynamic. We also have a board that is heavily female dominated. Um, and again, I think you'll see that um, very common throughout the social service sector where where that happens. And for a long time, we all had all female board. And again, very proud of that fact as well. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we try to do is foster the skills and capabilities of our staff and try to promote um, them in, in their careers and try to help them network so that, um, you know, they are able to secure um, full-time, uh, high-paying <clears throat> jobs with good benefits. So, um, so that's where, that's, I think that's a little bit of a background um, as to uh, our team. With the pandemic, how has that changed your day-to-day -day operations? So one of the things I think that makes us a little bit of a little bit fortunate um, when it comes to changing of work environment because of the pandemic is that because we were not an organization that does frontline services. Um, there was not a lot of change that was required from our side in order to adapt and, and continue our work. And I think that's one of the reasons why we do continue to work really well together in this space of remote work. Um, our, all of our programs and projects are um, about collecting data or doing research or um, you know talking to the community members but not really providing that uh, frontline service um, it, and we did do that for a bit at the beginning of the pandemic we secured quite a bit of funding to support um, people that were homeless uh, we supported seniors that um, had food insecurity uh, we uh, established a helpline so that people can call in and we did that in partnership with our members that already provide frontline services um, so I think where CASA um, didn't struggle as much as other agencies to continue to um, operate is because we were able to do a lot of our work offline because we didn't have clients coming to us directly um, and we were able to work from our home and communicate from our home and obviously there's things you know that you need to adapt to that um, that happen in, in an in-person setting uh, you know staff meetings and, and things of that sort and um, sharing of documents like so all those technical uh, things um, and our IT had to adapt a little bit but I think on the whole there was a lot of um, that we were able to move very quickly to the online world um, and and that's not to say that it's the ideal way to work but uh, for us um, I haven't seen that it has negatively affected the productivity of our staff in any way. Um, I think they appreciate the fact that they don't have to do the travel, the commute to work, and they're still able to get things done. I have staff that are, uh, you know, prior to that, to the COVID 
we were located, we're still located, our head office is in Scarborough. Um, and so you would have to live close to Scarborough to be able to commute um, to work. But now I have staff that are working out of Waterloo, out of Oakville. Um, one person has um, moved to Vancouver and working out of there. So I think a lot of flexibility um, that the staff appreciate. But definitely in terms of technology, we did have to adapt. Uh, but uh, I think what what um, had us going was the fact that we didn't have to provide the frontline services. So going forward, is it going to be the same or will it be a, a blend of in-office and online? So far, I think um, based on how everything is going right now, there is not a lot of appetite to go back in the office, although we do have you know, the same office structure that is available for staff that don't have the equipment or internet or technology or safety to work from home. So we still have that office space, uh, but it's not um, utilized much as people are able to work comfortably from home. Um, we are in the process of securing some space through the city of Toronto. Um, maybe in a couple of years where we are hoping to create a hub of services for South Asians in Scarborough and in partnership with our member agencies that are providing services to different um, South Asian communities, including the Punjabi, the Tamil, the Bengali, the Afghan, uh, the Pakistani. So we are, um, so it's a big 6,000 square foot space. And um, we... So if, if that comes to fruition, uh, there might be a hybrid model where some staff are required to go in sometimes um, and, you know, just to monitor what's happening at the hub. But again, we wouldn't be providing the frontline front services. It would be our partners and our, our members that are providing the frontline services. So I, at that point, I think in a couple of years, I do see somewhat of a hybrid model, but I think until that comes um, to fruition, we, we are pretty much um, good with working online. Um, you know, I've, I've done quite a bit of uh, surveys with my staff to see what they're comfortable with. Um, and, you know, 95% uh, of them want to stay at home and work from home and they like the convenience of that. And um, so I think I see definitely uh, a future of us to, of us continuing to do that. But I think if, you know, we were to change some of the models of our service delivery or our partnerships, um, you know, that may change into a hybrid model, but you never know, right? So we, with this COVID uh, thing, you don't even know what's happening next month. So it's very difficult to, to predict what will happen a couple of years from now. I mean, like in December, we w would not have predicted that we would be in this state with the Omicron variant. So I think it's just, we have to take it one step at a time and see what, what this takes us to. So does your daughter help you? Um, my, so I have two kids now. I have an 80-year-old and I have a four-year-old. And um, yes, my daughter is uh, super, she's very much like me. She's super helpful. Uh, my son is the opposite and um, he's in kindergarten right now. <laughs> and um, he takes up a lot of, uh, you know, with online learning and all of that. So th it's it's a whole different ball game. Um, but, I, but I definitely like see... Um, you know, my, my for both of my kids, I think the way that I would raise them is 
to be um, cognizant of what anti-racism work looks like and, um, you know, what uh, equity is and uh, what it is to be fair um, and and respectful of people and differences. So I think that is, for me, more important, f- uh, you know, no matter what field she lands herself in, but I think just um, as I raise them, I would raise them in that perspective. And I feel like a lot of the work that we do, um, we wouldn't need to do if we all raised our kids in that way and they were able to actually um, grow up you know, being uh, equity-minded and equity-seeking. So um, def- that's definitely my, my goals as, as a parent to raise them in that way. So uh, how do you get funding for what you're doing? Um, so we, we're an organization that um, heavily relies on funding and, and grants. And so um, we get funding from various levels of government, so municipal, uh, provincial, federal. Uh, We also get funding from United Way. Um, We get funding from other foundations like the Law Foundation of Ontario. Um, And we've received funding from uh, smaller organizations like the Toronto Arts Council as well. So it depends on uh, what we are uh, kind of focusing on at the time and what kind of projects we have. And so based on that, we have this annual cycle where we will apply for funding um, based on, you know, whatever meets our uh, our mission and our vision. And so um, I would say I, more than 95% of our budget is based on funding. And we've been fortunate um, during this pandemic uh, to be able to secure funding to support our communities. I think at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of kind of trying to like shake people's head and say like, this is real and our communities are sur- are suffering and we need more resources to help them. And not just CASA, a lot of our members found themselves really frustrated at the way that systems have worked um, in, you know, to the disadvantage of our communities. And so, um, you know, as a result of some of that, um, some of that advocacy, we have been able to secure more funding now to support our members and our communities uh, with the work. So we've uh, gotten a grant from the Canadian Women's Foundation to do some work on um, gender-based violence. So um, it's basically one of. So I'm sure you you've read in the news that gender-based violence spiked during the pandemic and so and that's true for <clears throat> for many communities including the south asian community so one of the things we wanted to know is um, how do we serve victims of gender-based violence in um, situations of lockdowns right during the pandemic and you know the pandemic is far from over and we are continually seeing this these cycles of lockdowns and and so we want we are talking to um, victims of gender-based violence from all over the country actually and uh, we're seeing like how they would like to be served how is it a barrier-free service for them um, in this context and so uh, hopefully by uh, the end of um, this year we'll we'll have that project completed and we'll have um, resources and tools disseminated to organizations that are doing gender-based violence work, um, especially with the South Asian community, to tell them um, this is how your services should adapt 
um, in the context of the pandemic. So these kind of uh, new projects that have come up um, because of COVID, I think it's just because now we really have this visible um, situation in front of us where certain communities are suffering and um, and the government and other foundations are able to provide them resources. So we're b- we've been fortunate enough to secure a lot of those resources and support our communities. So Samia, look at your website. It's only in one language. Are there plans to make it multilingual? So our website um, is uh, designed to serve our member agencies. And so if you look at different projects, um, we have translated resources within each project. So the main website is for agencies. And, you know, there's an assumption that agencies that are providing services, there is some understanding of English for them to navigate the main page of the website. But as you go through the different projects, like, for example, we created a a toolkit for refugee women and we translated that toolkit into five or six different languages um, right now uh, we have our, our anti-hate um, online combat combating online hate project as well and we've translated that in english french and other languages as well our <clears throat> vaccine engagement work is done in five different south asian languages so if you go into the different projects and the resources um, that are included in the different projects those are translated um, in in the languages that we feel that are most needed and obviously being an organization that is always uh, restricted uh, with how much resources we have because we're grants based. Um, unf- it's unfortunate we have to restrict ourselves to you know the 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 most spoken kind of South Asian languages. So it's about five or six of them at a time that we focus on. Sometimes we also do non-South Asian languages if we feel like our projects are impacting communities that are not South Asian, like the refugee um, toolkit for refugee women. We had that translated in in Spanish and in Arabic as well, because we know that there was a lot of refugees that that speak these two languages too, even though they're not South Asian languages. So if you look at our website and you look at the projects and if the projects um, include resources for members to use for the community, uh, we will definitely have them translated. Excellent. Okay, what about the connection with communities of faith? Are you connected with mosques or synagogues or temples or parishes or churches? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, again, it depends on uh, which um, projects we are doing. Um, So I can give you some examples of our uh, partnerships. Um, So in the past, we've had a project um, before the Ford government with the Trillium Gift of Life Network um, for organ and tissue donations. So one of the things that they highlighted was a gap in um, registering to be organ donors in the South Asian community. And so we found that the gap, um, some of the gap was a result of religious beliefs. And so we really um, targeted working with faith partners in that particular project. And so uh, we worked with, um, you know, the three major religions that South Asians follow, which is um, Islam, Hinduism, and Sikhism. Um, And also uh, there's a big uh, Christian population. So we worked with churches in that one a little bit as well. So uh, we worked with um, faith leaders. Uh, We worked with the actual places of worship. We created content um, in partnership with them to 
educate people about what their faith says about organ donation um, to improve the likelihood that South Asians would register to be organ donors. Um, we've also been working with them on our vaccine engagement uh, work uh, where our partner agencies that belong to different communities um, are di working directly like with their imams or their uh, priests or their pundits uh, or their gurus um, to to educate their community by creating videos um, and 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 disseminating those videos to their communities uh, about you know getting vaccine and and the safety of vaccines and the permissibility of vaccines in their faith. So it just it it depends on what angle our projects are taking and where we need to partner. Um, we also have this group called the Anti Hate Community Leaders Group. Um, so this is a group that formulated um, post uh, the Christchurch massacre that happened in New Zealand. And this group is an interfaith, intercultural, interethnic, interracial uh, group uh, of over 40 leaders from across the country, um, including people from, you know, the Jewish faith, the Islamic faith, the Sikh faith, the Hindu faith, the Christian faith, um, and then people that are, that, you know, are, don't have a particular faith and have uh, focused on certain racial communities or ethnic communities. Um, and we work together on a lot of our anti-hate work. Um, we do a lot of collaboration and, and we do a lot of consultation with this, um, this group that I, I feel like represents a lot of diverse views. And so I feel it's a, it's a huge benefit to CASA um, to work with this, this group of community leaders. Um, and it helps us produce really great content for our community. So, so yeah, definitely interfaith work is, um, is part of a lot of our projects that we do. Sammy, you're passionate about what you're doing and you're coming up with new projects as we go forward. And I see you as a national organization in the near future. Can you give us the website that people should go to to get more information? Yes, for sure. So our website is uh, www.casa.ca. Dot on dot ca. So that's our website, www.casa.on.ca. And a lot of our information and resources and projects are, uh, are on our website. Thank you. You have a, a great uh, purpose in life and you're delivering very well. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Peter.